Welcome to Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Well, welcome back, everyone. When I say welcome back, I'm not presuming that the same exact six or seven people listen to each episode, but <laughs> actually, maybe maybe I am. I don't know. Welcome back. Glad you're here. I was like, hello, Dad. mom. <laughs> <laughs> mom, Dad. Uh, glad, to, glad, glad you're with us again. Although I do have a, a good friend who's always telling me, don't talk. Don't make jokes like that. You don't. You don't know who's listening. So uh, we probably won't edit this out. We probably should. But that's that's the way we do things. David, thanks for being back with me. It's good to see you, man. So what we're doing today is kind of follow up to a wonderful accident. So David had been helping me, and I'll David. I'll ask you to say more about this in a moment. But David had been helping me with some behind the scenes stuff with the podcast we ended up stumbling into what turned out to be a series of conversations that were related to each other in ways that caught, mm. caught, caught us off guard and then thought, you know, we should, we should do something to seal that what's happened. So David, why don't you kind of give your account of those? Yeah. Happy accidents? Do I, um, I mean, do I need to specify for everyone that this, this was not entirely a hostile takeover? <laughs> Chris is in good health. He's safe. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I have not. I have not kidnapped him into. Uh, we, we've not like relegated Bill and Christopher to the the sidelines. You know, like this is just uh, the way things have played out in the yeah. last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, and it's been it's been fun to to sort of be involved in it in this this way, Chris. And and I think the accidental nature of the last three conversations with Vilimati and with Frank and then with Kimberly, I think has, as I was listening to it, I kept finding myself <laughs> overwhelmed maybe by the quality of what was being said by your guests, but find myself thinking as somebody who, you know, first came to your podcast as a listener, uh, you know, found myself thinking, man, I want to hear more about what Chris thinks about this as well. Uh, and so that was, for me, was kind of pushing you into, well, what would it look like to reflect on an accidental series of three interviews, um, which I imagine anybody who's listened to has lots of thoughts spiraling off. I mean, how can you not have lots of thoughts uh, listening to any of the three of those conversations? But maybe a space for, for you to frame it a little bit about how you see it, yeah. how you understood it. And and I think what was interesting to me, and perhaps this is where we start, is how the three conversations held together, actually, that we were able to see themes trending through all three conversations. Uh, and so perhaps we start there talking about, uh, you know, all of them together, uh, Chris, like what sort of themes do you detect uh, and, and, and want to start unpacking? Yeah, so for those who might not have have heard, you know, if mom and dad haven't, haven't <laughs> listened to the previous ones, uh, it, you know, it's it's we we had the first one with Velimati Kark kind of, and trying to put the emphasis on that first syllable as he directed me to do, and it was I mean it was lovely, and one of the things you know, David, you and I discussed is how I like to do long form podcasts mm-hmm. for for lots of reasons. Um, I get, I get a lot of feedback with people who are, you know, p- 
passive aggressively complaining about the length of it, but it's quite intentional on my part. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do it for, again, a number of reasons. I'll name two right now. One is I find that when you do things long form, you get a different kind of engagement. And mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that I hate about social media happens in quick responses to short pieces. And if you just work in longer forms, it's not that people agree with you about everything by any means, but the disagreements tend to engage in a different mm-hmm. spirit. It's not as reactionary. It's not as hot. Yes. So that's part of the reason I do it. It's a way of just steering clear of, you know, hot button issues that provoke quick reactionary responses. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason it's, you know, a defense mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, it has more than you know, it's more than that, but it's not it's not not that at least in part. The the other the other part of it though is I think there's something about conversation that to get to the depths of something, it, mm-hmm. it does kind of have to rise up out, out of out yeah. of the conversation. And I think what happened in that Velimanzi conversation, at least my read of it, David, mm-hmm. is that you know it was it was lovely chat. And then we got to the part where he started talking out of his heart. I think he even said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking out of my heart now. Mm-hmm. You know? And like, that's man, I live for that. Like, let's, let's get to that part of the, con- not, not in a hurry, but when we get mm-hmm. to it, let's make sure that we, we stay there. And I think that happened again in the, in the conversation with Frank, right. That we got to this place where he's talking as an elder, right. Mm-hmm. Not just as a scholar, not just as a theologian, but as an elder. And that ends up shifting the tone, the intensity of the conversation in ways that I find, you know, vital, like, like absolutely essential. Like we, we need those kinds of conversations and it takes time. It takes time and you have to make, you have to make room for, for them to speak until they know that this is a space where they can speak in that voice. Right. Yes. Yes. And then it, again, I didn't plan this. I don't have that kind of uh, design. Uh, I didn't have that kind of design in mind and I don't really have the, the space to, to, to plan it. It just fell out that I happen to have these three conversations back to back to back mm-hmm. with, with Frank and Velimati and Kim, and they all are elders. I mean, they're mm-hmm. scholars, first rate scholars who, who are doing important work. But I, I think one of the reasons that all those conversations held together is because of their role mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. not just the Pentecostal community, but in the church. You know, they they have a, a kind of responsibility, and when space is made for them, they're therefore able to speak from that place. So that's at least a first brush at what I what I heard is common across them. And and all three of them, even just to think biographically at the moment, all three of them, self-confessed Pentecostals mm-hmm. who are saying, do you think this is fair to say? They are saying the sort of things that Pentecostals are not known for saying. Sure. Uh, w- would that be, you, you know, they, they were working, I, I felt them as they pushed and poked at certain areas. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, man, I don't hear. Your, if you say Pentecostal to somebody on the street, 
the sorts of things that Vilimati and Frank and Kim were saying are not the sorts of things that people jump to. You know, oh, yeah, Pentecostals, those are the people making space for women. You know, those are the people speaking against nationalism and asking questions about our hospitality and our global outlook. Uh, You might suggest that people's first response would be the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And so I I think I think in a lot of places that would be the first response and not without reason. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) To to put it mildly. But that, again, just underscores the need for their voices to be heard, I think. And I do, I, again, this was in no way designed, but I, I do think it's important that Kim, in a sense, got the last word, right? That she yeah. she was able to you know, speak from that. And as I talked about in that podcast, I, I was just so impressed with how nuanced, mm-hmm. how finely shaded everything she said was. And, and it ah, there's just such wisdom in that. Mm-hmm. It, I'm reading again. I've read it several times, but I'm reading it again right now. David Ford has a book called Christian Wisdom, which he he talks about the need for wisdom and how theology and the work of theology can make us wise. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these last three conversations are are exhibit A, B, and C yeah. for the kind of wisdom that the work of theology done prayerfully. Mm-hmm accomplishes or effects for us. And, and that, you, you know, the way you frame that there struck me as well. Again, in all three, the question, I mean, and, and Vilimati spoke to it explicitly, but I, I mean, you felt it in all of them, this question of, of, of an unusual methodology that, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, Vilimati saying like, not a lot of people are doing this type of work because it's, yeah. it, we're having to pull in ideas from a lot of different places. And, and it, and yeah. it it was apparent to me as I was listening to all three that each of them had a, a methodological approach to what they were doing that, again, isn't commonly encountered. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, my background is biblical studies. You know, we're I mean, we give papers that are, you know, 50 minutes methodology and 10 minutes content. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and those are the ones you feel are content heavy. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, right. man, he, he really focused on the content today. Only 50 minutes on footnotes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and and this actually strangles us. All the time it strangles us because the questions that we want to get to, we can't get to because we've become not just methodologically obsessed, but methodologically obsessed in a very particular way where where we deal with the extreme granularity of you know, a particular subject. And I wonder sometimes, despite it being my field, is it for the church, this becomes deeply unhelpful because you end up with people talking about things that nobody can, nobody else can understand. And, yeah. and, and to take the bravery to say, I'm actually going to spread my net wider and ask mm-hmm. questions. Like I was, I was thinking that actual moment when Vilimati talked about, okay, now I'm speaking from my heart uh, you know, he, he, he asked, he, he framed it like this. He said, you know, what if we could write something he said, that, that would have a spirit inspired imagination, a vision of what Pentecostalism could be. And then he said this, that was economically open-minded, culturally open-minded, politically open-minded and academically open-minded, and he even left it open to, you know, there could be others. 
So you see this attempt to really think broadly uh, and about how the ideas that, that he was working on, and I felt this in Frank and Kim as well, are, are bleeding out and leaking in and influencing the sort of work that we do at the church. You know, So when I hear yeah. people responding to, to me about the interview with Kimberly, saying, like, I'm, I'm sharing this with all my friends <laughs> because they need to listen to this, which is what popular level work gets dismissed for, but needs, isn't it? It is. It is. That's exactly right. And it's part of what's happened. And you know this, I mean, and I'm sure virtually everyone who's listening knows this too, but it is sometimes worth pointing out that the, our, our culture here, you know, the Anglophone culture, more broadly, quote unquote, Western culture, Mm -hmm. cultures more appropriately. I mean, there's so much upheaval. There's so much change coming so fast. And most of our institutions, our churches and our schools in particular, are are rather liquid because of mm-hmm. that, right? Like in in the they 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 have a hard time holding identity, you know. And mm-hmm. we could get into reasons for that, but I think one of the effects. Let me come at it like this. I realized this with my with my students, so you know. One of my full-time jobs is as a professor, and I've been doing that in one form or another for a little over 20 years, and the the dynamics of the classroom have changed pretty dramatically in that time mm-hmm. with, with the students I teach, and one of the things that has changed that I think has resulted in like a fundamental alteration of what I do in the classroom is that these students now do not go to churches that take responsibility for any kind of what we you know traditionally have called discipleship. Mm. They go to church and th- these are the ones who are, you know, churched. They go to church once a week. They go to church once a week for an hour, hour and a half at a time. If they do any kind of quote unquote discipleship, they do it online. They do it via podcasts or they do it via, you know, watching YouTubes or the, these kind of loose online connections, Mm. maybe reading, but not through their church, right? They're not, they're not being discipled in a community, at least not in a community of, you know, of people at a particular time and place that where you have a, um, a set identity around mm. the relationships that have formed there over time. And what that means among other things is that when they come to theology courses or Bible courses in seminary or in university, they come in part because there's nowhere else to turn for that kind of work anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm with people that they can have ongoing relationship with. So they can, of course, find that online. They can find that kind of content online, mm-hmm. but they can't find that relationship online. So like I would say, you know, just in, in my 20 something years of doing this, you know, it went from churches are doing this kind of work. And then we in Bible schools and universities and seminaries mm-hmm. do something related to that focused on those who are going to be ordained. Mm, mm. to no, 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 no. Like, like if this kind of work is going to happen at all, deep Bible study, mm. 
deep reflection. And I'm not talking about academic reflection. I just mean reflection, like mm. studious, careful thought about the issues that face us, the issues of faith, uh, the confronting, you know, what now had, is called deconstruction. Like that can't happen in our churches. Mm. There's not time. We don't have time with each other to do that. Mm. So the speaker might speak about it, but there's not time for shared study and conversation about it mm. in our churches. So that's either going to happen and is almost certainly going to happen primarily online Right. Or in a setting like our schools. So I, I think that one of the uh, consequences of that has been that the only people who've done that work for the long haul are professors. Hmm. Like when I look at speaking about the Pentecostal movement in a broad way, and I think about who are the wisest people, the people who have internalized the faith in ways that are holy and, you know, regulent with God's goodness, you know, people that you want to turn to when you're in, you're facing serious mm. challenges, a disproportionate number of those people are professors. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's not accidental. It's because over, t you know, the backstory, right. Is we relegated those people Mm -hmm. to the margin, you know, in terms of our Pentecostal churches, we did not, we didn't value that. Yeah. And so many of these people's stories started in the pain of being pushed to the edge yes. in some way. Now that's different for Feli Monty, right? Because he's Lutheran, you know, he's ordained in a, he's, he's charismatic as we used to say, yeah. our lower P Pentecostal, but for, for Frank and for Kim mm -hmm. in particular, rooted in that classical Pentecostal tradition, there's a way in which what they do is not valued by the people at the institutional center, the ecclesial center. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's iron, it's ironic. It's also very much like God that <laughs> the it's people like that. And those people in particular, and I, I think there are, you know, a whole bunch of others I could name very quickly who, even though the quote unquote church leaders might not recognize it, like they're truly the elders for the the Christian communities mm -hmm. in, in again, the West, the English speaking world and so on. I, I wonder what you make of that, like what your read of that is, given where you live now, your experience in the UK. I mean, is that an American phenom or is that something that kind of is playing out more broadly, like I suspect? Like I feel that I, I recognize that story, you know, like yeah. that's like, and, and without you know, turning this into some form of therapy or confessional, like that is my story, right? <laughs> where, uh, and, and at multiple levels, talking about the UK, for example, there is, I, I what we saw, so I, I worked in, in a sort of Bible college seminary context in the UK for uh, nine years. And, you know, exactly the process that you described of students, uh, you know, and, and like, let me use a very notional and very simplistic model, right? But, but I remember being asked my first day of Bible college, uh, you know, I remember being asked about our reading of the Bible, right? And, uh, and this is very rudimentary, so forgive me. But I remember being asked about our reading of the Bible, and the question was, how many of you have read the Bible? And I, I remember my, the, the guy who became best man at my weddings saying to the prof, well, I, I read the entire Bible three times this summer in preparation to come to seminary, right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and, and that was kind of not 
unusual. Like people were pretty impressed. Like, man, that was a that was an intense summer. But everybody in the class was like, "Yes, this is something we have done." Mm-hmm. When when I my final year teaching, we I used to ask this question to my first year students, and and I like I remember once teaching a Paul class, and I you know somebody said, "What's the best thing for us to read before we do this class?" And I said, "Well, Paul, um, you know," and uh, and somebody wrote it down, and, uh, and uh, you know, um, who's Paul? Yes, right, right, what are you talking about? You know, and after that, Isaiah, right? And um, but but it it was we were then at a level that it never occurred to students to think about reading text before they came to a biblical theology, uh, yeah. you know, degree program. Now I, I don't, I'm actually not disrespecting. I hope I'm not disrespecting the students. When I say no, that, yeah. I actually yeah. am pushing that back to the pastors of their churches who somehow had got a student to a place that they wanted to go to Bible college, but never occurred to them. They should possibly read the Bible. Then that student does start reading the Bible. You know, and I was thinking about this when, when Kim was talking It's like, you know, like, and please forgive, you know, the simplicity again of this, but like, if you want people to really grasp God's vision for the equality of women, like just read Luke's gospel. I mean, it's just, it's there at some level. It will generate the problems for you. Um, But if you don't have anybody reading it, they don't, then they come to seminary. Somebody says, read Luke's gospel and start asking them some pointed questions. And all of a sudden, the message that we get back from the churches is, man, you know, our young people are coming to your Bible college and they're all deconstructing. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, well, mm-hmm. are they, or are they just reading the text for the first time? Yeah. And, and this creates this suspicion. So we saw this in the UK really, really heavily, this suspicion that we don't know what to do with our academics other than when occasionally we get ourselves into uh, a problem. Um, I, right, like, yeah, yeah. They, they rescue us on the apologetics front. Yes. When necessary, right? But, yes. but other than that, they're just <laughs> trouble to keep around. I, I did like humorous story that I'll keep anonymous, but uh, like I was invited one day to speak at a, um, a gathering of pastors and the subject I was asked to speak about was like sexuality in the church, right? And I I was able to be there early enough just to hear some stuff that was said in the session before me, <laughs> and, uh, which was basically a very classic Pentecostal, you know, trolling of the academy. Right? It was like, you know, why we don't want to be sending our kids to Bible colleges, why we don't want to lose them from our churches, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and this was very passionate that we we don't want to send people into higher education training programs. We want to train them in the local church and on the ground. And then in one breath, with apparently no awareness of the irony, this this was said. It was like, hey, we're going to take a break now. And after that, we're going to come back to a session and talk about sexuality in the church, which is a really difficult subject. So we've brought in one of the guys from our seminary to talk about this. And and, and it was hilarious at some level for me being there to see that light, but which is a long way, Chris, of me saying that I see exactly what you're saying. I see it in Canada and I see it in, and I saw it very intensely. It's not lost on me. The, the, the seminary that I, you know, taught in doesn't really functionally exist anymore in the context that it did that I was involved in. And and I do think that's a very, that's more complex as to why than people often see and, or the story that's told about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think 
you know, one, one, one of the things we're, we, we're talking around, walking around and talking around here is, you know, the American evangelical churches are not, are not really churches, right? Well, and I, I, we talked about this Frank's when we, point, we talked with Frank, it? right? Mm. That it, they're, they're ministries. Yeah. They're, they do this or that thing that's church adjacent, right? And they yeah. do it in buildings they call churches and they, they identify as churches, but you know, they're, they're not doing what traditionally has been recognized as church, mm. right? Mm. They, they're focusing almost entirely on a ministry or two. Mm -hmm. And some of that is just the pressures of the market. Like how, how do we, how can we afford to stay open? Yeah. Well, we've got to have a product, right? We've got to have a thing that people know us for, right? Mm -hmm. That's some of it. Not, that's not the whole story, but that's a, that's a basic aspect of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think we, all of the things we're describing here are the result of that of, the, of that collapse, right? The, there, there's a way in which we've we've come apart, mm-hmm. and we're not communal. I think human beings are meant to be communal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a one of the things that I that I end up returning to a lot is this notion of we human beings need each other. I mean, you, you can't, obviously you can't come into being without yeah. human beings being in communion together and and you can't survive without human beings devoting hmm. really, you know, that the old cliche about it takes a village to raise a child. I mean, hmm. there's a reason that cliche became cliched, right? Yeah. But now we've come to a way of living in which the, I, we're, we're together but in ways that aren't in communion is, is especially difficult. Mm. And I think our churches in part, because, and and here I'm talking, when I say our churches, again, I'm talking not about all Christians, Mm. but specifically those circles in which you and I move, like they, they don't, they don't have the authority Mm. in people's lives to insist on community. And, they don't know how to, even when they realize they need to do it, they often don't know how to do it in a healthy way. So they end up becoming a substitute family or a a substitute culture, you know, Mm. in which it becomes um, the attachments become too intimate or too, too forceful. I'm not, I'm not, I struggle to find the right way to name it, but like we, we've lost the capacity. It seems to me, for the kind of community the church is meant to be and to give in, mm-hmm. in much the same way, you know, like we've talked before about the, the loss of the sacramental imagination, you know, that we, mm-hmm. we can imagine a world in which there are visible things and invisible things in some sense, mm-hmm. but we have a hard time imagining a world in which visible and invisible things are one mm-hmm. that, yeah. that, that they, they, they coexist and, yes. and cooperate in some basic way. Like we, we have a hard time with that category. Mm-hmm. And I think church community is a, it's a different category. It's not family. It's, mm. you know, it's not kin, blood kinship. It's also not just simple you know, affiliation. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a team. It's not um, a, a network. It's its own kind of communion, mm-hmm. and it facilitates a particular kind of communion. And we've by again we our churches our circles we've lost that. And I I think one of the reasons our elders have to say the things they have to say is because we we're we're missing that. Like we're mm-hmm. we're fundamentally um we're bereft of yeah. Yeah. the of something we that's essential yes. to the life we're meant to live. Well, I mean it it seems to me that <laughs> We talk about fictive kinship in, you know, the social scientists will talk about what, yeah. what they see developing in the early churches is fictive kinship, where actually behaves very much like a family, even though everyone is aware that's not exactly what's going on here. But I I can't help but think that, that Frank was speaking to that in his his conversation with us, that it's even when, and maybe this is too damning, so forgive me if it is, when we find churches that appear to move towards something that resembles the community of the New Testament, they they do it in the key of North American capitalism. Right? Mm-hmm. So so it's a conquering, it's a it's a normalizing, it's a it's a whitewashing actually to be to be totally frank. So so when we when we end up attempting that i think about all the churches that i hear of and have explored even my own time about that have apparently phenomenal community there's certain things that and this goes back to i think your critique of sort of wagner's work and, and stuff like that, that that's exactly right yeah the, there's there's things that happen that actually have face have forced it into an appearance of community but this goes back to this thing that it but it doesn't really become church because of all of the people who are excluded in order to make that happen. I mean, I don't know if that reflects what you were scratching at there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I can, let me give some examples. Right. So I, Mm -hmm. I think, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to, I don't want to be offensive. And I also don't want to, to flatten the reality down. You know, sometimes when we're trying to map the reality, we end up distorting it. If you leave, uh, leave really big gaps between your examples, I can edit them out really easily. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right there, you go. So, like, I think there was a kind of church that I knew as a kid—a a kind of rural congregation mm. that was that functioned like uh, like a hothouse for socialization in this mm. sense, right? Like mm. you. You knew this. You knew these people. They had all gone to this this same church as long as you'd been alive. Yeah, and their parents too, right? But what kind of was happening there was still not quite what I would call church. Even then, it was something else. Yeah. But it was a different something else than what we see now, right? Yes. So what we saw then in those kind of small rural ch- and again, these small rural churches could also show up in large cities. Yeah, because it had to do with a way, a kind of socialization that was happening. I think, mm. which is, you come here to learn how to be an American. You come here to learn how to be, even more than an American, you come here to learn how to be a a worker. Mm-hmm. 
it was a, it was a kind of, and I, I don't mean this cynically, but mm-hmm. there was so like the values that were actually being embedded in people mm-hmm. were working class values. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean to reduce it. I think God was doing, I don't mean to reduce it down to, to socioeconomic di- you know, dynamics, mm-hmm. but because I do think there was holy work that was happening there, but it was what held us together was not a shared confession, mm-hmm. but a pattern of life that work forced on us. Mm-hmm. Right. What happened is the world changed. Yeah. We already then, I would say, we're not really doing church. Right. We, we were, again, we're calling it that, but it was a different kind of, it was, it was more like a camp where we workers were living together over the long haul. And there was certainly a kind of connectivity. I mean, you're you know, connected to your family and to other families that were connected to yours, but like these were kinship groups that had mm. not all fictive, right? I mean, like kinship groups Actually, that were, yeah. you know, families were intertwined, yeah. but what you were learning more than anything else was the kind of stability and modesty, politeness, and dependability that make a a, a good worker, mm-hmm. right? All of that shot through with this is what the Lord requires of you, and so on. Mm-hmm. But it was, if if I can put it this way, like the the Christian virtues were being marshaled to bring about a formation of a working class of people. Mm-hmm. Right? Then what we think of as the working class just starts to disappear because mm-hmm. the econo- the socioeconomic situation, at least here in the U S changes so dramatically, right. Mm-hmm. That the, those jobs start to disappear. That way of life starts to mm-hmm. change and people are now moving to find jobs. Right. Yeah. So one of the, if I can shift from kind of that, small, let's say a hundred people in a rural church where they're, Mm. they're learning to be working class people fundamentally. Well, by the time I'm in college, that's already collapsing Mm. on, on so many fronts. And what's replacing it is either a mega church or a church that wants to be a mega church in which now the connections are entirely different. Like we're not there to learn to be good workers. Like we're there to improve our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So now, and this is where I think the shift becomes a, to, it becomes a middle-class message, doesn't it? It's still a middle-class message. Exactly. But yeah. instead of it being a place where we're formed as workers, mm-hmm. we're now coming there to receive what we need in order to make the life we want for ourselves through yeah. our work. Yes. Does that make sense? Like yes. I think yeah. earlier the church, our churches, there was enough of a community there mm-hmm. for it to have a kind of formational, power. Mm, mm. I think by the time I'm a young adult, churches no longer have that kind of formational power. What yeah. they do is they deliver a product. They deliver, you know, they, they promise you here, come here and we can help you, you know, get your finances in order. We can yeah. help you get your marriage in order. We can help you, you know, have a sense of purpose. Like, I mean, yeah. the, the, the purpose driven life. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that I think is, is a basic shift that reflects that larger, political and socioeconomic shift that we're describing here. 
And 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 then I think the world changed again. <laughs> and and what replaced those churches was it was that same model still of delivering a product, but now it's even far more specialized and in much less time. Mm. Right. So now we still have to do that, but now we feel the pressure of if we don't do this, we won't survive. Mm. Right. So it's, it's the intensity is ratcheted up. It's because everything depends on being able to do that. We won't exist as a church if we don't do that or Christianity in America will die if we don't do this. Mm. I mean, it's like the, the, the sense of, uh, you know, apocalyptic fear, right. Mm, mm. And existential fear, I think becomes so, so dominant. And so we, we feel we've got to do this, but we have no time to do it. Like we've got to do this mm. every single time we're together. Right? Yeah, yeah. And another, of course, another layer of this <clears throat> is, and do it with a certain kind of what we called excellence. I mean, I am still allergic to that word for this very reason, right? Like that, <laughs> Not only do we have to do this, but we have to do it in a way that's slick, mm. Mm. you know? And again, I think <clears throat> I'm, I'm a deep, not, we didn't expect to be having this conversation about aesthetics, but <clears throat> I, I'm a, I'm really convinced that beauty is never slick. Mm. Beauty is never slick. And what, <clears throat> while I do think we have to do good work, work that has, that is beautiful, mm. right? If it's not beautiful, it will distort the truth we're trying to share. Yes. That if it's slick, it's something else. It's a substitute for beauty. Yeah. yeah. And at that point, we end up distorting the truth in a different way, right? So again, we're, we're, we seem to be far afield from where we started, but this to me is the underlying reality that has made all of the, the concerns about hospitality, the concerns yeah. about the, what it means to be the church, the concerns about the ways in which we've processed the problems that have confronted us. Like, I think the, that's why our elders are saying what they're saying, right? Yeah. Because this is at least what I'm describing now is, is a basic reality that all of us are you know, swamped in. Yeah. And, and I don't. I mean, I don't feel like we are far afield um, from the conversation because I, I think, I think what you're speaking to, and you said it right there. I think it is the thing that makes hospitality impossible, right? And uh, yeah. I, I remember reading a long time ago a, a book by a designer from uh, Saatchi and Saatchi, and. Uh, he made this throwaway comment. You know those little comments that live rent-free in your brain? So I'm growing up, you know, you and I are similar age. I'm growing up in the UK. We're watching all the amazing, and I say this with air quotes, amazing things that are happening in the megachurch in, you know, in uh, in North America. And and excellence becomes our byword for everything. If you can't do it excellently, don't do it at all. And I remember reading in my mid-20s this little piece, this book on art and design, and 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 the guy simply said said this. He, he he dropped this comment, and I remember nearly being anathematized for bringing it up in a seminar once, where he just said, he said, never aim for excellence when good enough will do, right? Um, and then he unpacks it, and he says, the problem with excellence is, is, is you are polishing and preserving something from something that was good yesterday. He said, and what happens is you start, excellence becomes preservationist eventually like this we can just keep making this better and and i 
wonder how much that that stops us needing to be sensitive to the spirit, right? Because yeah, yeah. You want to jump in on that? <laughs> yeah, because this is like this. Okay, this this is magic right here. I think, David, mm-hmm. because I think this is points to the ways in which the world has changed. All right. So when mm-hmm. when did you hear that? When when was that said? That would have been like sort of mid two thousands. Okay. Yeah. So I think now I think. When he said that, I think that's exactly true. Excellence mm. meant polishing up mm. things already existing. Yes. So um, I, I think there, that's a technological machine uh, dominant imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the sense that we think <clears throat> like excellence is about fine tuning or polishing up, yes. right? And I think in that world, you're inevitably sliding toward preservation toward, yes. you know, a museum like quality. Yeah. You know, where, you know, you've got everything behind fine glass and, and the <laughs> best lighting, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. I think now we live in a world in which nothing is preserved. Mm. Excellence does not mean preservation. Now I think excellence means replacement with some superior technology. Right. Mm-hmm. So like if I have a, you know, I don't even know what number I'm, my iPhone is, but you know, I, there's a way in which people are going to recognize, like people who know what they're, yes, what they're doing. If if my iPhone is too old, they're going to see that right away. And too yes. old means, you know, a few generations back. Right? That's why the my number of cameras on the back is public. It's the bit that everybody can see. You know, that's exactly right, right? <laughs> and yeah, I'm showing David my iPhone while we while we talk. And and, so and I can, and I now know what iPhone Chris has, and I'm judging him as a result of it. Please, please do. Please For full do. record, we have the same iPhone. <laughs> nice. Uh, no doubt that's the that's the the basis of our 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 friendship. But I I I'm saying now, I think excellence now is is sheer slickness. It's not polishing up. Mm. It's a kind of design that in which. It's there's there's a kind of coolness to it, and a kind of finishness that's it's too it's too perfect, right? Mm-hmm. So, look, like my favorite example of this is like um, the the ways in which apps have made it so that you can kind of clean up a photograph. Mm. So, like you can take a photo, right? Yeah, a, a digital image, and then you can kind of run it through an app. And it'll, you know, it'll take all the red out of your eyes or, or mm. take the wrinkles away. Like what, what we used to call airbrushing, mm. but, but airbrushing suggests like a kind of human technique still like that. Yes. You're, you're doing something like yeah. as a human being. And, and now it's, there's a kind of, again, I don't know what to call it other than slickness. I mean, I, mm. I, I probably need to find some other language, but. The, there's a there's a kind what we think of as excellence now I think is not so much polishing up right taking something mm-hmm. that's there and and being careful with it as it is replacing like everything that is not excellent in the sense of you know high definition yes yeah you know I, I hmm maybe you can push back on me or, or redirect the conversation. Cause I, I, I think this is an important distinction because I think mm-hmm. it points to how quickly our ministerial contexts are changing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons that we're, we're struggling to address what people are actually overcome by. Yeah. 
is that we don't realize how fast the world is changing and how much what we're trying to do ministerially is is being pressured by mm-hmm. by these forces of you know what what counts so um yeah i i didn't want to miss that point even though again i can't put it into the words yet that i mm-hmm. that i'd like to find for it but i i do think that and this is not really a pushback, an, an external musing, but the the question of the spirit becomes significant in both of those because the the, the understanding is that you know, and I, and I've maybe got the story of Babel in the back of my head because I've been thinking about it since we talked to Frank mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that 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 we can do this, <laughs> and and however we choose to what process this out, and and, and so it makes me, and maybe I'm trying to. I'm maybe going to try and attempt to grasp too many things together all at once here, which is my common. No, mind. that's what we always do on the podcast. <laughs> okay, if so. you're not trying to do too much, you're wasting your time. But I was, I was thinking about the the discipleship failure that you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. this excellence obsession, and then and and then can I can I even call it the the random i think randomness is the word i want to use rather than failure the randomness of our liturgy right mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that actually doesn't push us into the spaces where the spirit can work in us yeah. and doesn't push us into the spaces that i don't naturally want to go you know yeah. so i i think i say this to people again very rudimentary example one of the things i love about praying the our father is it it asks me to forgive people that I would not naturally think to pray about if I if I if I had a more scattered liturgy. And and I grew up in a highly scattered liturgy, you yeah. know, and, and I'm and avoiding that kind of misnomer that some churches are liturgical and some churches aren't. But I think some churches' liturgy is random and it doesn't push us to to it, it like going back to again what I've said already, so I'm not just repeating myself. Like I think if we if we had a lectionary that we that pushed us to read the scripture more you know more organized then mm-hmm. we would see things in scripture that would cause us problems we would yeah. see the liturgy of the nations that frank talked about we would see the 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 spirit and mary that we talked about with kim like you know this would become apparent to us but we've chosen to be to be excellent about something that is actually quite vapid almost <laughs> you know there's not much to it and we've we, we've made this excellent so we're exposed to you know consistent retakes on the story of the prodigal son right and uh you know that's what we go to church and hear and we hear better and better expositions of that but we avoid the sort of i i think the work that 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 organized liturgy takes mm-hmm. us towards and makes us wrestle with it. And so I don't know if there's something in that that's kind of holding all of these pieces together. Um, I don't know. Is that, yeah. is that making sense? Yeah. yeah. So if I go back to, you know, my kind of off the cuff modeling. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about that rural Pentecostal, you know, what I call sweaty Pentecostal church of my youth. Yeah. Where we were being socialized into good workers, mm-hmm. primarily, not only, but primarily. I think that they had a liturgy that was not random, mm-hmm. right? Like it, I, it just wasn't, it wasn't faithful to the faith once delivered to the saints, right? Mm-hmm. It was an unfaithful liturgy, but it was not a random one. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there was a coherence to it and 
even a kind of logic that can I, enforced. Can I ask you a question about that, yeah. if you don't want me just – because I, I'm very aware of my UK perspective mm-hmm. here. But our first generations of Pentecostals in the UK all came from somewhere. Right. So, so they, they, they came with formed liturgies. They came yes. with training. So, so like I heated up or sparked by their experience of the spirit. That's yes. exactly right. So, so I like read the works of like Smith Wigglesworth, for example, you know, mm-hmm. like prominent Pentecostal in the UK, in the, in the Pentecostal breakouts in the UK, you know, the, the, the man was clearly well-educated in the way of scripture and the way of Jesus. And then he, he has this spirit experience that kind of changes it all for him. But it seems like our second generation didn't have that foundation. And that's where these things – I mean, so, sorry to interject on that, but I wonder um, if that's similar with that rural well, church that you're describing. Sort of, yeah, but not quite. So, like, I'm yeah. suggesting something more – like, so behind the church of my youth, I think, mm-hmm. is the church of those founders of the movement. Mm-hmm. And those churches, I think, did have a, a kind of recognizably Christian liturgy because mm-hmm. – the, the people leading them mm-hmm. had been catechized mm-hmm. and formed mm-hmm. in other traditions. And yes. now they're ignited yes. by the experience of the spirit. Right. So Wigglesworth to me belongs to that. Yes. 100%. That's what I'm saying. The church of my youth, I think is no longer random, but they've essentially shifted to the more superficial aspects okay. of the faith because what mattered was not so much like, so for example, like, we went to church a lot. Like we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday night. Once a month, we went on Friday night. When we went to church, we went for a long time. And we we went to church to do work, right? We went to, you know, praying was a, was a full body, full contact sport, you know, like singing was full contact sport. Preaching was full contact sport. For and everyone, what's that? <laughs> For everybody, the sermon For everybody. was, was interesting. Preacher, right? Like it, it was like, and and all of that stuff, right, is only possible under certain kinds of conditions, and it has a certain kind of effect. So we, it, it didn't really. So, like one of the ways that this, when this dawned on me, was uh, I was doing some lectures on Pentecostals and the arts. I did a series of things. And one of the things I was thinking about is the songs of my youth. Mm. In terms of the content, the songs were often otherworldly. You know, things yeah. like I'll Fly Away. That's yeah. the best example of it. You know, the content of that song is, you know, deeply troubling, like the eschatology or, <laughs> or whatever. But actually, the performance of that song was anything but otherworldly. Yeah. Right. We all knew the song. Everybody mm-hmm. knew the song so well that everybody's able to just kind of sing their hearts out like while they sing it. Yeah. And it had the, like in effect, singing that song bound us to one another. Yes. Yeah. Right. It, it was as body as, as physical as a bar mm-hmm. song. In fact, again, our revivalist tradition that that has been a mark all the way through, right. That mm-hmm. we're singing hymns to the tune of, of work songs or, yeah. To drinking songs. Yeah. I mean, this goes right back to the Wesleys, right? Among yeah. amongst others. And so there's a there's a way in which even though what we're singing about technically is escapist, mm-hmm. that's not what's actually happening to us. That's not how we're being formed. Yes. Yes. Right. And the fact that they these things feel like pub songs or drinking songs or field songs or working songs is not an accident because it's those are the kinds of people we were and we're learning to be. Mm-hmm. 
But by the time I'm in college and I'm a young adult and I'm in these churches that are either huge or want to be, mm -hmm. right, are trying to get big, yeah. they, they're singing a different type of song and we're singing a different way. Mm -hmm. like, li like literally our bodies are performing. It's not full contact anymore. No. And we're emoting differently. Like we're trying to sing from some spiritual place. We're not singing from our bodies, if mm -hmm. that makes mm -hmm. any sense. And then I think by the time you get to the next iteration, and which excellence is this, you know, the, the newest, slickest mm -hmm. technology, we're not singing at all. We're yeah. watching somebody sing. We're, yes. we're, we're, it's a concert in front of us. Yeah. And, we're not even watching those people standing on the stage. We're watching the screens mm. of the people on the stage, even if we're in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're re doubly removed from them. Right. Mm. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. now no longer something that is happening that we're doing. It's, it's mm -hmm. far from a full contact sport, right? It's not even a full contact sport for the people who are doing it, yeah. much less those of us who are watching it. And I, I think those are the kinds, and I think it's changing again, by the way. I think it's already shifting away from that to, and I, I think the pandemic has a lot to do with that. I was going to ask yeah. you about the pandemic because that really brought that into sharp relief. Yeah, I, I think I think first of all, it showed us something, but now it's actually formed us in that mm -hmm. I think the we're – there was a time in which I think it was awkward for people to adjust to the ways in which technology was coming between us and other people. Mm -hmm. I think we're exactly at the opposite place now in which when we have contact with another person that's not mediated technologically, that's awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll, I'll, my wife and I were listening to a comedian last night and he was talking about having lost his phone. So he's, you know, a comedian, he's traveling all over mm -hmm. And he is at some, you know, he has an event. What something happens, he loses his phone. He's got to fly to the next city. And because, because he's without his phone, right. He oversleeps. He misses his flight because he's without his phone. He can't order it via the internet. So he has to go to the airport to buy a ticket. And he like walks up to the counter and says, you know, I want to buy a ticket to Austin. And like nobody at the airport has any idea. What, what are you talking about? You want to buy a ticket? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, like go online and buy one. He's like, no, no, I have no way to do that. I don't have a computer. I don't have a phone. I need to buy one from you. And they have to like, go find this old woman. He's like, she's 90 years old, like hanging on uh, to this job because she's the only one who can remember how to do this. Right. And then he's like, while he, he finally gets a ticket and while he's waiting at his gate, he decides to grab Starbucks right in the terminal. Mm -hmm. And he's the only person standing in this line of 200 people. Who's not on the phone. Yeah. yeah. And like everybody around him is like, side eye at him like dude what a weirdo are you yeah, like, like psychopath you, don't you talk to me like you yeah exactly you psychopath like are you like planning to yeah so I, think about what that means though right like i mean that wasn't true 10 years ago yeah. right yeah. for sure and and that's not like that's not just a funny observation that's the world we are living in that's mm -hmm. the world our students are living in our children are living in but that's also the world we're working in and preaching mm -hmm. in and praying in yeah and so we're, we're, we're so, I think so far behind the curve, if I can use that mm -hmm. metaphor for the, the needs that such a world creates in people. 
yeah. and and the pains that it creates. And I, I yeah, I'll, I'll let you respond to that. No, I, I <laughs> my response is probably that I feel that deeply. You know, as mm-hmm. well, both of us are, are are pastors, and and this this kind of tension that you know I came out of the pandemic as a pastor and and was deeply troubled by you know and perhaps for context our church would be sort of classic pentecostal evangelical sort of uh, you know mid-sized church in in a yeah. in a canadian city uh, pentecostal by name l- nothing in our service would give that away you, you know <laughs> uh, you know the exactly the situation you've described a a congregation that largely stay silent and observe uh, you know, and then the pandemic came along, and I was deeply troubled by how easy we transitioned to an online service. Right? Mm-hmm. It was it was like so simple for us because we said, "Well, all of these parts that we do now just become a, a YouTube video." Mm-hmm. Um, and I came out of the pandemic determined, <laughs> perhaps you know, not as reflective on this as perhaps I should have been, but determined to say when maybe a dark thought but when the next pandemic comes mm-hmm. let's make sure that mm-hmm. what we do when we're gathered together is really difficult to translate into an online service right? yeah, yeah. Uh, so how do we find our voices community again how do we discover one another uh, in 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 the room mm-hmm. um and and the shocking nature of how afraid of one another we are which i think implicates on how we build community how we do discipleship and even how the spirit works uh, works mm-hmm. in us because again with this question of hospitality over the course of the pandemic we found new divisions we found new ways to other one another and and i think that's something we need to be cognizant of as well perhaps yeah well i wonder if i don't know and this i mean this is a, a brand new thought for me let's touch on a couple of the texts that came up in the conversation mm. Mm. Like, let's, let's talk about the Babel text for a moment and mm. then the woman at the well. So okay. this new thought like that just hit me is I wonder if what we're describing is what happens when building the tower succeeds. Mm. Like, are we living right now a reality? Yeah, so like I'm coming at it like this, right? You know, so in, in Acts, is it Acts 19, the Mars Hill passage? You know where Paul says, "You know, I, I, I've 17, walked about I think, Athens, yeah, yeah. seventeen. Okay. Yeah. So I walked about the city. I think nineteen mm. is the, the shipwreck. Um, yeah. I walked yeah. about the city, and you know, I'm, I'm grieved by the idolatry that I see here. Mm. But I've noticed this altar, this altar to the unknown god. And I know your poets, right? Your poets say mm. that in him we live and move and have our being. So I, I'm here to tell you, I know the name of that god, mm-hmm. right? And I know the life in which you're you're being mm-hmm. as it's being." It, it's Jesus and his resurrection life. God is raising. Yeah. Now, I think we're in almost exactly the opposite situation in which we are. The idolatry we have is not the idolatry of a, a bunch of false gods and then an unnamed true God, but a, a bunch of names mm. for the true God that are misleading and more mm. misleading than the name, these false gods and the, Mm -hmm. and the names that are given there. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like to preach the gospel to people who already know the name of God, but have no way of understanding or have lost their, their sense of the character of the God Mm -hmm. they're naming. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Like that, I, that seems to me a much harder situation, right? But, yeah. you know, it, Paul doesn't meet with a ton of success in terms of, you know, a lot of people rushing to believe. But I, I think our success is, is even more meager in that mm-hmm. we, it is, I think, unbelievably hard to talk to people about God as he is, God as the church has witnessed him to be, mm-hmm. when they think they already know that. Mm-hmm. Or... They know they don't know it, but they can't imagine that it matters in any way for their everyday lives. So I think that's the situation. So if we, if we connect acts, you know, the Mars Hill story back to the Babel story, you know, in, in the Babel story where we, we have a, an interruption, a divine breakage Mm. we're, we're, and I think as an act of grace and mercy, Mm. you know, saving us from, the, the artificiality of forcing everybody into one language, as you said, right? Yeah. Where, where there's something unnatural about mm-hmm. speaking one language and God frees us from that. Yes. But what happens if God's intervention doesn't come? What happens if we succeed in building that tower and closing the circle in that sense? Yeah. And and so maybe, gosh, that's a, that's a heavy thought, but I, I wonder what, what you make of that. Like, is that, at least close to what we're describing. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking about how you tie that as well into the stuff we see in revelation as, as at the mm. other end of the story of this, yeah, 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 yeah. of this resist, you know, of, of this, um, uh, Frank's words have just gone from me. You, you know, Frank talked about this annihilation of the self, right? Yeah. You know, the, and you see that in all of these characters in in Revelation that they are that they are annihilating difference and yes. And so I, I am I am tempted very much to see that as the case, and I'm struck as you're saying this um, about how much. I think Bart is speaking to this uh, in, in, in his work. And, and I know that, you know, I, I don't know Bonhoeffer well enough to comment in, in, in your presence about, about, you know, where he, but I definitely, I feel that's exactly the problem that Bart is speaking to is there is this God we speak about, but our resistance to hearing about him is this false assumption that we know him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I and I can't remember the reference, but then you have C.S. Lewis, who again I have some issues, and I think you and I share issues on 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 Lewis. But Lewis makes a point uh, in in I think the 1950s in the UK that the 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 descent of church attendance has the potential to be good for Christianity <laughs> because the hardest group of people to try and preach the gospel to is a group of people who think they understand it. Um, right. And I can't help but now that I've moved to North America, think that I, I, I think you're, I think you really strike the nail on the head with this question that you're in this. It is not an unknown God. It is, it's a misunderstood God. It's a, it's a God that we're not paying attention to perhaps. It's yeah. It's a God we've presumed upon. Yes. That's yeah. And th- there's, there's no worse idolatry than that. Like, mm-hmm. and, and no idolatry that's, and when I say worse, I mean, no idolatry from which it's harder to be delivered. Yes. Then a, a God who's a God in your house and easy to neglect precisely because mm-hmm. you can hide it behind talk about how precious 
yes. this God is to you, right? Yes. You can sentimentalize it in in a, in a way that betrays what you how you actually live <laughs> with this God, right? And gosh, I think that's that's a a, a legacy for. Christianity in America is this this presuming of, upon God. So mm-hmm. let, let me come then to the John four text mm-hmm. and the, the woman at the well. See what you make of this. So I preached that you know last Sunday. I was about to say you have me at a disadvantage here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure the hearers of the sermon were at an even worse disadvantage than <laughs> than you, David. But the the. I, I've continued to kind of ruminate on it. I mean, I, mm. I always think of better things to say once I've said whatever I've said in a sermon, you know. Um, the But one of the things that I've returned to over and over again over the last couple of days mm. is that Jesus meets this woman at a well. Mm-hmm. And he meets her at a certain time as well as at a certain place. Mm-hmm. And... She's there in some kind of routine. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I think we 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 think we know more about this woman than we actually do. Like, there's a yeah. there's a lot of you know legend about what her past was and why she's here at the well at this time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we know all that stuff. I, I like I'm just not convinced we know that she was there alone because the people in her city mm. are suspicious of her. I, I just don't. I don't think we actually know that. The, the text certainly doesn't tell us that, no. and I'm not sure how trustworthy our reconstructions of the ancient world are on those fronts, but <laughs> leave that aside. I'm even less sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's like your field. So like the, the fact that you're less sure, it just confirms my suspicion. <laughs> but what, what I'm, what I'm interested in is she's able to be, so she, she's in routine and mm-hmm. she's coming to this well and she sees this, this man who tells her he wants a drink. And what's striking to me is she doesn't just give it to him. Mm-hmm. She doesn't just give it to him. Now she clearly knows the texts. She knows the story. She knows this is Jacob's well, right? She knows the, the debates about where worship is to happen. Mm. She would have known, of course, the Rebecca story. She would have known all, all of those well woman at the well stories in mm-hmm. Israel's texts. And, and she would have been, and, and this is not a reconstruction. She was a person in a society in which hospitality was the virtue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's the Abrahamic virtue. Yes. So why does she not just say, of course? Mm-hmm. And I think the reason or a reason is when you have a, a, a kind of an appropriate rhythm to your life, when, when you have routines that are uh, allow you to move through life with, with, with the kind of order that music has or the order that the seasons have or the order that the heavens have, that's a different order from the order of the workday or the order mm-hmm. of the calendar or the clock. Mm-hmm. And it allows for a different kind of awareness. So I I'm thinking more and more. She comes to this well. She's in her routine. Jesus asks her this question, but because she's able to be present with that particular kind of awareness that comes 
when you're living that kind of rhythm, she's able to be curious about why he's asking her this. Mm-hmm. She has the time to say, wait a minute. Like, I, I didn't think Jews, and I, I can tell that you are one. Mm-hmm. I didn't think Jews would use Samaritan utensils, right? Would you would you use you know, my water pot? Mm-hmm. I, I think that you, in order to be able to hear a request, like I need a drink of water, and to let yourself be curious about it in a way that opens this conversation up, mm-hmm. you have to live a certain kind of life. Like you have, and you have to be able, like the, the kind of shift from that kind of att- awareness to focused attention. You know, remember that line from Simon mm-hmm. Bay, like absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. Yes. Right? Yes. In order to get to unmixed attention, you have to have a kind of non-anxious awareness that's, that can be sparked by curiosity toward attention. Mm-hmm. The kind of life in this, this is, you know, you earlier, you were talking about randomness, but I think it's, it's randomness plus busyness. Yeah. Yeah. There's a speed at which the randomness is happening to us that mm-hmm. creates noise that makes it so that we don't know how to let the curiosity lead us into the kinds of conversations that become life changing, mm-hmm. that become you know, altering in, in a, in a basic way. Right. Mm-hmm. And this woman does that, right. That it's, if, if Jesus, and, and of course he does encounter other people in other ways, you know, the way he stops under Zacchaeus's tree or mm-hmm. the way that he interrupts the funeral procession for the widow at Nain or the way he comes walking on the water. I mean, Jesus can intersect our lives and the way he meets the Emmaus disciples, mm-hmm. he can intersect our lives at, at many, many different points and us in very, very different states. But this seems to me to be the, the one that we should pray for. There's a kind of peace mm-hmm. that routine gives us that, that coming to the well in the middle of the day to get the water that we need, something we're going to have to do over and over and over again. Right? Mm-hmm. If, if we could find that kind of rhythm again, the movement to attention, you know, Moses, leading the sheep and seeing the bush burning. I mean, if I can put it like this, like how many times a day am I passing these moments of grace and where, where Jesus is at the well, but I've got too many voices around mm-hmm. me. I'm, I'm moving too fast. I'm, I'm rushing to get the water pot filled and get back because I'm running late for something else. Or, you know, I'm, I'm doing three things at once. And so I, I don't hear his question. Mm-hmm. Or I don't see the bush burning because you know I'm I'm worried that the I've got too many sheep. Right? I can't <laughs> I can't keep them all in view at the same time, mm-hmm. or I've mixed sheep and goats together. Or you know I don't want the metaphors to get away from me. But the the point being, I I think there's something about the way our lives are being lived that make it especially hard mm-hmm. for us to be present. And so much of what we're discussing, you and I, and that came up in those conversations, I think what the elders are saying is you, you've got to let God deal with that. You've got to yeah. let God deal with the basic structures of your life, the way it's lived day to day. 
the so what we're saying about the liturgy has to work its way out to the whole of our existence. Yes. What's happening in our homes, what's happening in our jobs, what's happening in the car between home and the job and, yeah. and so on. I think that's, I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? I have to say, I have to say that, you know, as a Pauline scholar, when metaphors get muddled with other metaphors and they get carried away, I mean, that is me in the you closest thing right to heaven. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, let me explain this metaphor with five other metaphors. And, uh, you know, and that's if, and if you don't follow that joke, just go read first Thessalonians four. And, you know what I mean? But, but that the, amazing. but I, I actually, I, I there's, you know, as a as somebody raised in kind of you know nineteen eighties British Pentecostalism, there is actually a reaction in us to what you have just said, right? Mm. That because we would structure services, and I'm sure this isn't language that's exclusive to you know Scottish Pentecostalism in my childhood, but we would structure services in such a way that it would be so we will do this, and then we will do this. And then who knows what will happen, right? Yeah, right? And we actually went looking for the lack of routine. And, and mm-hmm. in fact, the one thing that we were convinced of was the spirit was definitely never in routine. Right? <laughs> I mean, does that resonate? A hundred percent. So, so we ended up with a lens that that interpretation you just bring, you know, that reading you bring to John four, like we can't see that, you know, no, like we can't see that. This story has to be random. This story has to be completely random for it to make any sense to us at all no. of how the Holy Spirit works. Yeah, right? it's that we're thinking Jesus is saving us from routine. You know, Jesus is like it's it's sin and the powers of death that mm-hmm. lead to routine, and Jesus has got to deliver rescue us. us. Yeah, yeah, rescue us. That is what the you know, and, and forgive me, I, I'm, I'm playing a role here, but but that is what the dead churches do. um, and and we therefore are tone deaf to the the very apparent routine that is present in of all places acts (laughs) the disciples are doing things all the time and the holy spirit turns up in the routine uh you you know in ways and and this i think weighs into this anti-sacramental life that we end up with then as well um and so the idea of John, reading John four sacramentally, I mean, oh my goodness, what a what a leap! It's about living water, <laughs> but, but the idea of of reading it sacramentally is is almost anathema to us. Uh, if if again, if you've grown up within within my background, so mm-hmm. it's easier for us to other the woman, create a random story, uh, mm-hmm. and and then it be about something different than to read it the way that you've suggested it just there. Yeah. 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 And you know, this, what impresses me about her, right. About this woman is the, well, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of honesty about her. Mm. You know, uh, she's not, again, I think we, we misread this story terribly when we <laughs> not only like build a backstory yeah. of, of some kind of sordid life, but also when we read her, and this again, this is in the commentaries. I just checked again, um, you know, before I preached on Sunday, and there are far too many commentators who are otherwise, you know, learned and skilled and sensitive, mm-hmm. who just assume that her questions 
are silly or dismissive or, mm. you know, that, you know, when Jesus tells her, you're right, you know, what you've spoken is true. You, you, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. And then she asked that question. She says, you know, the Lord and I be is sir, Lord, you, um, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Um, and then she asked him this question about where should we worship? Like it, there are a lot of commentators who, who read that as dismissive or as, as a kind of deflection, right? Mm. She doesn't want to talk about her personal life. So she redirects to the, but again, the text doesn't say any such thing. Mm. Right? No. And I, I think what's happening there is, is just as likely, if not more likely to be the kind of honesty that comes when life is not getting away from you. So I, I guess the, the point I want to press is that I feel pressed by, let me put it like that is I, I think the, the rhythm at which we live, the, not the rhythm, the speed at which we live Mm -hmm. and the, the number of things we're allowing to happen in and around us Mm -hmm. has everything to do with the kind of awareness we can live with. Mm -hmm. And the kind of awareness we can live with has everything to do with whether or not we receive grace in vain or whether we just miss it all together. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the, the, the kind of deep structure of our lives is the problem right now. Right. Like it's not the case that I, I don't think it's a matter of will. I don't think that people just want the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It's we can't be a we can't be um, present to the right things, yes. right? and and it's not simply you know yeah I mean I could go on forever about that but it's that that's what I'm sensing right and that these mm-hmm. what 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 the old Pentecostals called tarrying you know and. Yes. That, that came up in the in the conversation with Kim, right? Praying through that you, you have these these women who are putting their body in places, putting their bodies in places and staying there. Mm-hmm. Right. Now I that's I I, I mean, I don't want to overstate or oversimplify by any means, but that seems to me to be right at the heart of what we need now is to mm-hmm. learn how to be present again, how to stay, how to, you know, in that language, how to tarry. It's, it's, I mean, this is a very, (laughs) forgive me if this is an overly uh, Bible scholar uh, (laughs) connection here. Um, But, but I'm just, as you were talking there, I'm sort of leafing around in John, this, this sense of, of, of being present and, you talked about the revelation that's present in that. I'm just, I, I'm just contrasting what John's doing in John chapter seven and eight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which interestingly, you know, has this kind of awkward text about the the woman who is who is caught by the by the Pharisees in a minute, which earliest, you know, earliest manuscripts don't have there. And if you right. remove that story, and not to get into a debate as to whether that's right or wrong, but if you remove that story, John 7 through to the end of 8 
is a debate about the living water of Jesus, right? So, so there's 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 resonance of what's going on in in the story, but the story ends just so it's one of my favorite conversations with Jesus. They they bounce back and forward, you know. Pharisees say Jesus can't be the Messiah; he can't even be a prophet because you know you can't be a prophet and be from Galilee. It's beautiful that they forgot about Jonah, you know, all, all this sort of stuff that that comes in. Um, and then you get this conversation about Abraham, who would rejoice when he saw my day. And, and the response from Jesus' accusers is, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you before, Abraham was, I am. Um, and you get this ego Amy, this I, I, this emphatic I am language of Jesus, yeah. which seems to have some resonance to the name of God. Their response is they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, right? So hold that story. The, the whole narrative about living water leads up to an I am confession, and the response is to throw rocks at Jesus, or at least to attempt to. Whereas actually then your story here in John 4, with all the things that you've said, I'm completely agreeing. It's beautiful that it leads up to an I am statement. The NIV obscures it for us just to be super of course, helpful. Yeah. Um, verse 26, and Jesus, you know, so sorry, verse 25 I know the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. (laughs) When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am. (laughs) And um, I am the one speaking to you. Right. Then you get this little interjection. The disciples come back and they're like, what's going on here? Right. Which we use to build a lot of things. But then her response is to leave her water jar, go back Mm -hmm. to the city, say, come and see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. Can he be the Messiah, right? You know, you know, is it possible that this one is the Christ, right? So you actually get this gorgeous, you know, both stories about water, both lead to this moment of revelation where Jesus offers the, the divine, you know, I am. And now we see the reaction to that. And, and, and I, I, I'm now, I mean, this is off the cuff, but I'm now wondering about how John is playing with his narrative. The, 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 the Samaritan woman as the archetype of faith. Right. Which we know John does, does it with the beloved yeah, disciple, you know, that he likes to, you know, but you've got the archetype of faith based uh, in contrast with those who would throw rocks at Jesus. Mm-hmm. And ironically, both of them have handles on the law. Both of them have handles on, 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 you know, Old Testament script, you, you know, so. They do. Well, the, she's, she's the good Samaritan, right? For John. Mm-hmm. And yes. instead of finding the man in the road dead, she encounters Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? But she, she, you know, she stays with him. Yeah. She's present to him, yeah. and and therefore, when he makes the "I am" statement, she, even though she doesn't, I mean, it takes her some time to get to it, right? Like yeah. the, you know, it's it's stunning to me, right? He tells her early on, "You don't know who you're talking to." Right? Mm. Like you don't know who you're talking to, but even by the end, she's. She she's not fully sure, right? When she goes to the city, what she says to them is, you know, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And and I love, and I did point this out on Sunday. She, right before he tells you, I'm the one, or I am he, I am he who's talking to you. She said, I know when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. Mm-hmm. Right, which I think is hilarious, right? Because Jesus doesn't explain anything. <laughs> uh, as I told them on Sunday, I was like, "The like, he doesn't explain himself." And trust me, you don't want him to. <laughs> like, you may think you do, you don't. Right? What he says instead is, "No, no, no I am. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to explain everything to you. I'm going to identify yeah. myself to you." Yeah. 
And what strikes me about the way John tells us and think about how it compares with the passage, you know, from John seven and eight that you're bringing up mm. the passages, the right at that moment, the disciples come. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, you know, she said, the Messiah is going to explain everything. Jesus says, I am he, I am mm-hmm. he who is speaking to you. Mm-hmm. And right at that moment, the disciples appear. Mm-hmm. And John tells us that they're like, what is happening? <laughs> Why is Jesus talking with this woman? Right. <laughs> but no one's brave enough to ask him. <laughs> Nobody says anything. And then she leaves. Yeah. And here's, here's what hit me. If they had, this story would have taken a, a, a hard left turn. Mm-hmm. If they had, if they had spoken, mm-hmm. then it interrupts her moment of awareness. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they just don't say anything is enough for her to kind of get away before they can do any damage, right? The, the fact that they just at least swallow their their yeah. words. She's able to run back to the city, and what she says to them is, "Come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Not explained everything." Mm. but described my life in such a way that I know he encompasses it. Mm. Right. And then she says, he can't be the Messiah. Can he? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think this is, you know, clever evangelism on her part. I think there's a way in which she's starting to think maybe this is him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I'm going to keep running at it. And I'm going to have all of us run at it and ask him to stay, mm-hmm. ask him to stay with us. Right. And, the, but he only, and this is another detail in the text that I love. He does stay. He does agree to stay for a couple of days. And I, I mean, I, I don't mean this flippantly. It's so telling that he won't stay longer mm-hmm. because he, un, he understands that the work he's doing in their life, he can do better mm-hmm. right when he's, when he's gone so to speak. Um, That's again, a theme in John, right? It's good for you that I go away because if I do not go away, the comforter cannot come, right? This is, this is a basic, as you know, so I say all that to say, I think part of the reason in the first story that you brought up later in the Mm -hmm. gospel, they want to stone Mm -hmm. him that they're, you know, they're so offended. They want to kill him Mm -hmm. that he has to hide himself. And in this story, the one we're discussing now, which comes earlier in the gospel, the whole village rushes out and many believe on him either because of the yeah. woman or because of what Jesus himself says. The, the reason that the fundamental difference there is the kind of awareness that mm-hmm. was already existing yeah. when the revelation was given. Yes. Right. There was a, if we can use this metaphor, there was fertile soil broken up ground before. In, in yeah. John 4, there is not in John 7. And and so what Jesus is saying to one is received and springs to life. And in the other, springs to life. I, I mean, think about that as the pun. But in the other, does not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what you're – it always strikes me that – I mean, I, <laughs> John as a piece of text just is, is mind-blowing uh, so is often for yeah. me. But but he does this thing which I think speaks to this, and, and I think this is a key to tracking – if John I – always, I always used to say to people, if John was a stage show, this would be a bit you'd have to pay real close attention to right near the start. So John, end of John chapter 2, verse 24 – and again, most English translations obscure this, but let me just read it as it kind of rough, you know, this would be a very rudimentary translation here. John chapter two, verse 24. Uh, 
Um, but Jesus, um, you know, Jesus, he would not believe or trust himself to them, right? Um, because he knew all, right? Uh, then you get, and he did not have a need uh, to have a witness concerning humans because he knew what was in a human, right? Now, a human from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and that's literally how the text runs, right? You wow. get this gorgeous sort of, you yeah. know, says Jesus knew humans. He knew it was in humans. Oh, here comes a human. Yes. <laughs> so you, hey, dear reader, you know what to make of this story that's coming, right? That whatever's going on here, Jesus doesn't trust this conversation, right? He yeah. he knows what's going on. And it's and it strikes me then that the next conversation is is the is the woman um in Samaria. Yeah. But what's stark to me is that at some way, why, why can John allow the Pharisees, for example, to raise what appears to be a valid objection to Jesus being the Messiah? You know, they, they, they say things that actually John never corrects. They point out you can't be a prophet from Galilee. They point out the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. But John never corrects anything. He just leaves it out there. But I think it's because of this text here that he has set up for you, the reader, don't trust what people say in this gospel. People mm-hmm. will invariably say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is this woman is one of the people who gets closest to saying the right thing. Right? Well, and part of it is because all she's doing is being honest. Exactly. She's yeah. not claiming anything. Exactly. She's not trying exactly. to be clever. She's not trying to win an argument. Um, yeah. But but this, I, you know, I have Kim's narrative in my head as we're saying this, that, that again, mm-hmm. in a very subtle way, you know, not as explicit as Luke does, but but this Samaritan woman is is exactly as you say. This revelation is is landing with her differently than we see with the other people who should know better. Mm-hmm. And and I think and maybe we should end it here. One of the things that will stay with me for a long time from what Kim was saying is thinking about how the experience of being a woman, and I know like this is so charged right now because of the conversations around sexuality and gender and all of that. Mm-hmm. And and I, I mean, I want there, I don't have any, as far as I know, I don't have any kind of agenda on any of those fronts. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, I, I want to be careful here, but w- there is, there is something to what she was saying about women as women experience life in such a way that it creates a a kind of awareness Mm -hmm. to which men need to learn to defer at at, at these key moments. Right. And I think it's this Jesus is, is doing something for all of the city and for the disciples. Yeah. This woman becomes, you know, so the, she becomes the, the womb in which the disciples and the city can learn something they wouldn't learn in any other way. Hmm. Right. That she's the, and I, I want to be careful with my metaphors here because I don't want to essentialize fem, you know, femininity. I don't want to hmm. suggest that like what I, what I do not want to imply. And I, and Kim was not either is, you know, some kind of recursion to, old stereotypes about male female difference mm-hmm. that's not what i'm talking about here but there there are ways in which this woman as a woman like it, it's not accidental right that jesus talks about her past 
Mm-hmm. Like you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. Now, again, I don't think we know what that means. <laughs> like, I think it could have been, and we know, of course, from rabbinic tradition, you know, that this woman might be like the test case for what do you do? You know, the, the, the in another setting, they asked Jesus, you know, a woman who was married all of these times and all of these men died, mm-hmm. whose husband is, I mean, whose wife is she in, in the resurrection, right? Yeah. So is that what's happening here? Is this a woman who's yeah. has suffered the, the loss of husbands and she's kind of this test case? Mm-hmm. Um, I Whatever it is, though, whatever it is, I think what her story, what, what we're allowed to know of her story is this. And again, I'm, and I mentioned this on Sunday, I can't help but think about what happens at the end of the gospel when Jesus is talking to Peter and, and the beloved disciple walks by and Peter's like, what about him? <laughs> and Jesus is like, shut up. Like it's none of your business what I do with him. Right. Yeah. Like I think John always introduces characters to us in that way in which he's, mm-hmm. he's setting us up to, he knows that what's going to come up in us is what comes up in Peter, mm-hmm. which is, Oh, like, I want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, you get to know exactly what I want you to know about that person's story and no yeah. more. Right. Yeah. Like in the revelation, Jesus gives us in the end, Jesus gives us a stone that has an, our name written in it, a name that mm-hmm. only he and we know. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a way in which in the, in, in John's work, there's a, a knowledge of the person that is reserved for God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the community doesn't get to to peer into that. I think that's a, that's a crucial theme here. So we don't get to peer into what's actually happened to this woman. But what we do mm-hmm. know is that she has suffered in a way that only a woman could have suffered this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Only a woman under those conditions could have suffered this. Mm-hmm. And that allows her a certain kind of awareness that then births this transformation for her city for and and for the disciples like where they're learning so and so i i don't i don't know where all of that goes but i think it does come back to the react the you know just like the conversation about routine i I, I'll, i'll let my last comment be this i think part of what's happened and near near the the center of what's happened to us is artificiality has so distorted our lives that we've lost touch with what is and isn't real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because we're out of, you know, before we started recording day, we were talking about you um, doing cross country skiing and being out. Like our lives are so cut off from the natural rhythms of the world mm-hmm. and from the natural rhythms of our bodies. Mm-hmm. It's so interrupted by medicine and the, the again, technologies that enable us to alter how nature works on us Mm -hmm. that I think we're, we're fundamentally altering the awareness we have. Mm -hmm. That means the way in which grace cuts across our lives Mm -hmm. is harder to catch. Like we, we don't catch it because our, the artificiality of, the rhythms again. I keep saying rhythms, but they're not really rhythms. They're, it's a. It's more chaotic than that. I don't. I don't. I mean, music has rhythm, right? Mu- there's a. There's an order of life that is natural or musical, 
with which grace, I think, can just naturally, pun intended, mm. intervene. Most of us now are living lives that have a kind of artificial speed mm-hmm. and and a randomness, to use your word, that makes it harder yeah. for us to receive it. I mean, I don't think God is any less present or any less active. It's just harder for us to to notice and harder for us to, to be aware. So I'll let that be my last word. Why don't, why don't you, uh, I'll let you respond and yeah, I mean, send everybody home. I mean, at some level, the thing that comes to me um, is, and I'm, you know, I, and I've, I've just got these details to, to hand, but I was thinking about, about Babel and what you said just there, if I can almost metaphorize it like this, that, that the, the light bulb has become a form of, of our Babel, right? That, 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 you know, until really until Edison, right? And I, I did some math on this actually for a sermon I was supposed to teach at uh, sanctuary, but uh, in Tulsa, but of course, uh, Delta decided I should spend the day in Atlanta instead of Tulsa. Um, but, but until Edison's invention of the light bulb, it always required more hours of work to generate one hour of light. So for all of history, it required mm. you several hours of work to produce the, the, the ability to have one hour of, um, yeah, of light. Right? So, yeah, so this is, this is worse. It was um, a, a Yale economist at William Nordhaus that did this work and he used light and the amount of time it takes us to create light as a method of tracking um, kind of, you know, people's quality of life throughout history. And, and the invention of the technology of the light bulb for the first time allowed us to produce one hour of light for less time than it would take to actually work for that hour, hour of light. Um, and this, to me, is a, is a tipping point in history uh, that becomes all sorts of other technologies that allow us to live out of sync with nature. Right. So because, you know, if you have to work for eight hours to produce one hour of light, you don't, you know, you go to sleep when it gets dark, basically. Right? Yeah, right. And, uh, and, you know, and you sleep more in the winter and less in the summer and all this sort of stuff. Whereas now we can ignore that completely. Right. We can just and the light bulb just becomes a plethora of other things that allow yeah. us to yes. actually do what everyone in, in, in Babel is trying to do. Like my reading of Babel is why are they building a tower? Well, because they don't want to get caught out by another flood. Right. So so there's this, you know, how do we bring our technology to to move us out of sync with nature? Right. Nature does this flooding thing and we didn't like that very much. But I think we're smart enough to resist that. And so you see this human desire. So at some level to something that you've spoke to, there is in our modern technology, the reworking of Babel that, that we just keep doing at layer upon layer upon layer upon layer that allows us to ignore the work of the spirit that allows us to. um, And therefore I wonder how prophetic John's little coding at the end of chapter two that I read a moment there, Jesus doesn't trust humans because he knows what's in their hearts. He's also a word of prophetic to us to say, Oh, by the way, you should probably pay attention to that. (laughs) It's like your, your natural sense, you know, will, is probably not trustworthy. The spirit will be trying to do something. And I think what we've done in the modern context is we've assumed that all the spirit will do is come and affirm what we naturally yearn for rather than, rather than disrupt that. I I don't know if that, if Mm. that follows. Well, I wonder, you know, if, and maybe this, this, this is, can't be accidental. Nicodemus comes at night. Hmm. 
Right. And this woman is in the full light of midday. 100%. Yeah. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. I mean, eventually he yeah. does. The light does not go on, though, yeah. then. Right. Yeah. At the end of the gospel, the light is still not going on. He shows up at the tomb, mm-hmm. but the light is still not going on. And that that's just as it is, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. not a, that's not a shaming of him, but like we, how do we live in such a way that we, we can be present to Jesus in full light? I think mm-hmm. that's the, that makes all the difference, not just for mm-hmm. us, but for the, the people we're going to talk to. What you're saying there, Chris, about Nicodemus and how he arrives at night to see Jesus. I mean, I think there's a, there's a gorgeous you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus from the darkness to the night. Mm, but yeah. then later in John's gospel, we meet Judas. Judas is with Jesus, the light of the world. They have this scene of betrayal and Judas runs out. And then John offers us just this ah. stark statement where he says, it was night. It was right. night. Goodness. So, yeah. so the trajectory of Nicodemus, darkness to the light of the world. The trajectory of Judas is from the light of the world away from him. And it was night. Yeah. But what I think cannot be accidental is the next time we meet Judas, it's in the garden. And John says they were carrying torches. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's technology. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the technology. technology. Yeah. So we're using technology uh, to, to resist the problems that we perceive. But for mm. John's narrative, Jesus is the light of the world. So he makes no reference to the disciples and Jesus having torches. Like, well, they don't need torches. They're with the light of the world. And it's why the woman can leave her water pot, right? Because what Jesus is doing, she doesn't need technology for that. A hundred percent. Wow. That's stunning. I mean, that's, that's genuinely stunning. What do you make then of the, well, I mean, where does that take you? Like what, what, what does that leave you with? Well, I think it just, it speaks to exactly the point that, that you are making about our needs to be somewhere to be aware of what the spirit is doing because the spirit is the life. So you don't need to trust humans, including yourself. You think you have the technology to provide yourself light. You do not. You have Jesus. You think you have the technology to provide water, but wait a minute, this guy doesn't even have a pot of water and he's talking about living water. I think I think John is just doubling down over and over again. I am the light of the world. Ego Amy, the light of the world. You know, I am the water of life. Like this, to me, it's this, it's this. And the reason it's I am in, in the Greek, it's not, it's an emphatic, it's I, I am. I think in contrast to all the other things that you think are the solutions to what you perceive to be the problem. I mean, I think that's what John's doing in, in my opinion. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. I've not considered this before the, this conversation, not, not even for a moment, but if you think about the, what Jesus does with the wine at Cana, it is a kind of creation from, from nothing, mm-hmm. right? We're being told right up front. And, and, and then he will say about the temple, another technology, mm-hmm. the, you know, tear it down and in three days I will raise up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. another temple, right? I, yep. I will raise up a temple. Yes. And they're like, how could you possibly do that? Do you not know how long it took to build this kind mm-hmm. of thing? So I, I think if we, if we weren't, if we were paying attention, this is probably showing up over and over and over and over again in the gospel, right? That this, oh, this contrast between Jesus as the creator, who's able to do 
literally the impossible, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing wine from, from nothing, mm -hmm. you know, turning water to wine, this, this creation, but also, you know, opening them, the, the, the blind eyes, you know, this man who's been blind from birth, this has never happened. John tells us mm -hmm. in the history of the world, Jesus is able to do this, of course, resurrecting Lazarus, like, and, and doing that again, in explicit contrast to the, the water pot, mm -hmm. to the temple, to the torch, like over and over again, you know, Jesus is not a technology. Like mm. he, he, it, he is reality though. And the source of reality. And then perhaps most terrifying um, is, is what I alluded to earlier, chapter eight, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, a form of technology. I mean, rudimentary, but you know, yeah. and he hid himself. <laughs> so 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 much so jesus now we're seeing john and we've seen jesus do this before he can walk through a crowd and no one see him you know but there's this you, you know it's not just that he can create bread it's not just that he can create water it's not just that he can create light he can also be unseen by us mm -hmm. and, and and i and i i can't think there's not something of warning in that you know well and it's when we trust our judgment that he's unseeable right mm -hmm. so he he knows, you know, that passage you've returned to us to mm. over and over again. He knows what is in us and does not trust it, doesn't trust himself to it. Yes. I think is the way the, the phrase runs. He doesn't trust himself to what he knows is in us. Yeah. yeah. And and then later, of course, you'll say that the, the, the God of this world is coming but has nothing in me. Mm -hmm. So he knows what's in us. And that's not what's in him. Right? <laughs> and precisely for that reason, the devil can't get at him the way the devil yeah. gets at us. Yeah. And what happens is because of what's in us, we misjudge. Right? We, we love the darkness rather than the light. We leave the light to go out into the darkness to make our torches or whatever other technology we can mm -hmm. come up with to build our temples yeah. in order to establish artificially what actually can only come from the creator himself. Yeah. Mm. And that, that we, we really do have to stop, but then that ties <laughs> to, for me, at least to Hebrews, like what it means to be a pilgrim. People were looking for a city, not made with hands. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a builder or the builder who is God, right? Mm. Builder and maker is God. And so there's this, uh, I mean that that's a theme, right? Right, yeah. right on, right on through, right? That these yeah. we we are meant to be dependent upon the God who creates from nothing. Yes, yes, and that's a Pauline theme as well. I mean, like Paul is uh, like I, like I I'm a huge uh, align hugely with you know Bart and uh, more more recently Douglas Campbell's work on Paul and this that 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 in that if we position Christ at the center of everything that Christ even becomes a superior idea to our sense of knowledge, that, that our first piece of knowledge is Christ and all knowledge is now seen through Christ, uh, which is why I think apologetics has some real challenging issues for us because, oh, absolutely. Yeah. because what we tend to do is we position truth as a higher power than Christ and, and assess Christ based on our notions of truth. And, and Paul would reject that. And so would John completely out of hand. And, and then, and reality itself, like what, what we, what we need day to day. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. th this is, yeah, man, thank you, David, for this. <laughs> this is so, I mean, we're, 
as we talked about right at the beginning of this conversation almost two hours ago now, <laughs> like this is why longer conversations are needed. And I know that it will alter who listens to it, mm-hmm. but that's the point, right? I mean, we, we cannot, we've got to break our, the chaos, the, the ways in which our lives have been sped up for us by our technologies mm-hmm. and, and learn to, to be present to each other in such a way that, you know, we, we can notice grace when it's happening. So yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that friend. I really appreciate it. Well, man, this has been, this has been so much fun. Thank you for doing this, David. I really appreciate it. And I hope if nothing else, this forces people back who haven't yet heard yeah. to, to listen, forces them back to listen to, to what Kim and Frank and Billy Monty said. Yeah. And we can link to those uh, episodes in the notes as well. Can we? We will. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. All right, man. Well, until until next time, enjoy the don't die in the snow or <laughs> the backcountry. Is it backcountry and crosscountry? I had those terms switched earlier. Yeah, backcountry is the one where you likely will die, <laughs> and I don't do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We want you around. We want you around.